Hello and welcome along to this week's episode of the Total Fertility Podcast, where we explore the minds of experts from all different walks of life. Our aim is to make your fertility journey just that little bit easier. I'm Ed Coates, a consultant gynaecologist, a fertility specialist and co-founder of the website totalfertility.co.uk, where we try to connect you to all kinds of resources that will inform you, empower you and help you on your way to finding your fertility. Now the topic this week is IVF add-ons and the title is Do IVF Add-ons Always Add Up? And I'm delighted that we're going to be speaking to a real expert in this area because IVF add-ons is quite an important area of reproductive medicine and fertility treatments. It's often quite difficult to get to the bottom of each IVF add-on, trying to understand what they are, why we should be talking about them, why they cost money. And so I thought it'd make a really important and interesting episode for anybody going through fertility treatment to understand a little bit more about this really important topic. So we're going to be joined by Sarah Armstrong. Now, Dr. Sarah Armstrong is a researcher who has spent a long time looking into IVF add-ons. She's also a fertility doctor in the UK, and this is her area of special interest. So I couldn't think of anyone better to chat to about IVF add-ons and to really dig into the detail than Sarah herself, who's spent more than five years researching this this very important area. So, Sarah, it's really great to have you on the podcast. Welcome. Thanks, Ed. It's really great to be here. Thank you for having me. No, thank you. And thanks for giving up your valuable time. I know you are author of many journals and you, you get involved with lots of research um, areas uh, I- across fertility. But to have you here giving us your thoughts on this, I think, is really, really helpful for people listening. So, um, Not at all. It's, it's great. It's great to be here. Thank you. And it's such an important topic because... Um, we talk about IVF add-ons, I would pretty much think, every day in our clinics, as you know. Um, but it's really often a difficult area for patients to maybe understand all of the evidence behind each add-on and why they exist. And it can be quite daunting, I think, for patients to try and get to grips with it. So really simply, I wonder if you could just start by telling us a little bit about add-ons. You know, what are add-ons? Why are they important? You know, why talk about them? Sure. So add-ons are any additional extra alongside an IVF treatment cycle that you can have with the aim of improving um, the success rate of that cycle. And they can range from uh, surgical procedures such as scratching the lining of the womb. And then there's a whole host of um, drugs and drips that you can have. And then there's lots of things that go on in the laboratory which are considered add-ons. So different types of culture media or different ways of um, looking at the embryos. And there's laboratory equipment as well, such as um, incubators. So all of these things are purported to improve your chances of success. But the reason we're talking about them and the reason they're important is because uh, they cost patients money. So normally add-ons come at an additional cost to the patient. And that can range from a couple of hundred pounds to a couple of thousand pounds. And as you know, IVF is already a really expensive treatment. Mm-hmm. So this can really bump up the price of your IVF. And for some patients, that might mean that they don't go for another cycle of IVF uh, because they've spent so much on one with all the add-ons. And the other thing to say uh, is that add-ons are not yet at a point where they're considered um, to be um, proven to be effective. So they're still um, the jury's still out on whether... Um, they're effective or not and so that's why it's important because they're non-evidence-based and they often come 
at an extra cost. And I think the other thing to say is that patients going through IVF, I mean, you know, they're, they're desperate, often desperate for a child. And uh, when you're confronted with all these bewildering choices about additional treatments, it can sometimes be very hard to say no to these extras um, if you believe they may offer some additional hope of that much longed for child. Yeah, I think that's really sound advice and it's words that, you know, resonate with me and having done, like yourself, many consultations with patients, um, you can almost see the sort of, the look sometimes um, by the sort of, well, do I need to do this or do I not? Is this an important test? And and as you say, financially, it is expensive to do an IVF cycle and sadly, IVF cycles, if we're going to be completely honest, have uh, more chance of not working than they do of working. And so you are, you're definitely looking to try and increase those marginal gains as much as you can. So I do understand why IVF add-ons um, are attractive to patients. But the evidence is the bit that I think, obviously, to someone like yourself, who's a sort of seasoned researcher and has done loads of work in this area, um, is, is clear. Um, but for patients who maybe aren't scientists or haven't done research or um, haven't, haven't really been able to dig into the detail of each of these treatments that are offered by clinics, could you explain a little bit, I suppose, about your own research, but also a little bit about, I guess, evidence and data and and what evidence really means, because we, we, we use it as a throwaway word, don't we, all the time in clinic. There's no evidence for this or there's lots of evidence for this. What do we mean by evidence and, and, and why, why have you been looking at it in your research? So what we mean by evidence is proof that something works, okay? So we, as scientists, we talk about something called the evidence pyramid. Now, at the very bottom, there'd be clinical opinions. So that would be... Dr. Blog saying, I think you should use endometrial scratch because in my experience with my patients, I see there's a higher pregnancy rate with scratching. So that's sort of opinion right at the very bottom. And then we move up through different sort of types of trials. There's cohort studies. And then we move up towards randomized controlled trials, which are very near the very top of the evidence pyramid. So randomized controlled trials try to reduce the bias um, when looking at an intervention. So we randomly divide participants between having an intervention or having a control or existing treatment. And that helps us to determine whether the new treatment is any better than doing nothing or the existing treatment. And then at the very sharp end of the pyramid, we have systematic reviews. Now, systematic reviews gather together all of those high quality randomized controlled trials and try to determine uh, by combining the data from them whether a, a treatment is any better than a control. Mm -hmm. So my um, research, which I've been doing for many years now, has been looking at um, systematic reviews, so doing systematic reviews. And there's one group that does systematic reviews very well, and that's called Cochrane. And they're free to access their reviews, one click online, and they do really nice patient summaries as well. So it's a good place to look for evidence, um, summaries of evidence, uh, particularly on add-ons. Yeah, and it, uh, there are many add-ons, as you as you summarised at the beginning. You sort of sc scooted through lots of different ones in different areas, from surgery to the lab to different things you might add in terms of scratching the womb. There's loads of different things, but... Um, why is it that we haven't got necessarily really clear evidence? What, what, what's, what sort of led to the fact, is it to do with the fact that fertility is difficult to do research in or, or is it something else? 
Well, it's interesting. It's I think it's mainly because lots of these things don't fall under the remit of drugs. So they don't have to go through the same rigorous testing that a new tablet would have to go through. So often they hit uh, clinics well before there's been a large randomised control trial that shows robustly that it's better than the existing treatment or the existing technology. So um, I think that's how they've crept through a lot quicker. And IVF, you've got to remember, has always been on the cutting edge of science. So we've always embraced new technologies mm -hmm. and um, <clears throat> new things in the laboratory. But what we have to remember is that as we're using these new technologies, sometimes the evidence sort of lags a little bit behind. And sometimes as a community of IVF doctors, we have to reflect on the fact that some of those new interventions we adopted actually weren't any better than the existing things and sometimes were worse. And actually we need these good, large, randomised controlled trials to be sure that these things are, are worth the money, worth the patient's time, worth the extra heartache mm -hmm. of going through additional tests and treatments. I mean, as you say, it's, I mean, it's difficult, isn't it, for not just for patients as well, trying to sort of wade through the m multiple amounts of information that they're given when they come into IVF, but also then studies and, and data and evidence for this and evidence for that. But also it's difficult for clinics because, of course, clinics, I mean, it is a, obviously IVF is a big, a big business. It's a big industry and um, clinics um, obviously have to work from that point of view. But obviously you're at the cutting edge of experimental medicine, as you've just said. It's hard as well for clinics to wanting to give patients every chance um, as well. So it's very hard. I can see it from both sides, but equally it's important that we do stick to very evidence-based things. Um, in, in terms of your own medicine that you're, you've been researching in terms of adults, what, what specifically have you been, been looking at? So I've looked at three add-ons very closely. Uh, the first is time-lapse imaging of embryos. Um, in the special incubator. Yeah. The second is granulocyte macrophage colony stimulating factor containing culture media. Now that's a really that's a... big mouthful. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but actually in short, it's something called um, uh, oh, I'm have to come back to this. Yeah. No, what's the name of the um, culture media? Ugh. Oh, so in, in short, that's a culture media called Blastgen, which um, some patients may okay. be familiar with. So and it contains GMCSF. That's designed to improve the growth of the embryo whilst it's in its special culture media. So okay. um, improve the embryo's chance of getting to blastocyst. Mm -hmm. And then the third one is looking at endometrial scratching. Okay. And so you were involved in, um, in, I think, recruiting to trials, involved, certainly around the scratch, yes. I believe. Yeah, that's right. So I was involved in the largest randomised controlled trial in the world on endometrial scratching called the PIP studies. Mm -hmm. Okay. And um, your research is ongoing, so obviously it's a really important area. What are you hoping to, to, to show from, from your research? What are you hoping? What's the question that you're actually trying to ask? Well, the question is whether any of these interventions are any better than either not doing them, for example, with scratching. Is, it, is scratching any better than not scratching? Okay. And is, is the incubator and the, um, and the culture media any better than using a conventional incubator or conventional culture? And I understand it. Um, much of your work's already published and is, is already helping to make, make uh, it easier for patients and clinicians to make these decisions. Yes, that's right. So all of those three uh, Cochrane reviews have been published and they're all free to access online. 
um, and you know there's a nice patient summary as well of all of them so uh, I would encourage anyone who wants to read a little more just to read a short summary of the results. That's really how I mean it's great and I mean a lot of patients I mean I certainly wouldn't you, get, you can get lost in um, all the different research studies that are out there um, but the HEFEA who are the regulator of fertility treatments in the UK have been very clever and been a sort of step ahead with regards to trying to help patients understand what has evidence and what doesn't by producing mm. a quite handy traffic light system. What, what are your thoughts on the traffic light system and, and can you just explain a little bit about what it's designed to do? So the traffic light system is a fantastic visual way of quickly assessing the uh, quality of the evidence behind various add-ons and uh, there's obviously a red for some add-ons which means that there is a lack of good quality evidence uh, to uh, show eff effectiveness so the traffic lights just look at effectiveness so red means there's no evidence that any of these things are effective then there's amber which shows there's equivocal evidence so some might support the add-on some might not and then green would mean there's clinical evidence of effectiveness but uh, as you may have noticed Ed, there are no green add-ons on the website and this is really interesting because of course if an add-on were to become green then it would stop being an add-on because it would no longer be uh, of uncertain clinical effectiveness and safety so it would move into being routine practice so it's not surprising that there are no green add-ons um, at this stage but if any do become green then of course they'll be uh, hopefully adopted into re all of our routine practice. And I guess it goes back to the quality of research that's done and also the levels of evidence but do you think because there are many add-ons that are amber um, mm. as you know um, which is of unclear significance um, yes. I think and when you talk about effectiveness you're talking a little you're talking about success rates I presume in terms of increasing success rates. That's right and I think the HFE have got it spot on when they talk about um, success rates in terms of live birth. So the HFEA are interested in trials that report live birth. And I think from a patient's perspective, what more important outcome could there be than live birth? So that must always be the gold standard for us when we're looking at interventions in IVF uh, and looking at live birth rates. Yeah, I agree. And I think taking home a baby is, is what IVF is all about. Um, mm. That's what every patient is desiring. desiring excuse me and um, so that should be the focus of research but of course live birth uh, as, a, as a primary outcome in studies is quite hard to sometimes mm. always attain um, it, mm. and it's only the very high quality studies that usually do achieve th those outcomes. Um, so in terms of IVF add-ons um, what are your views on the ones the common ones which patients will, will, will come across if we could take them sort of one at a time um, if we look at I mean end of scratch yeah, so really interesting endometrial scratching. So lots of trials have been done on this topic. In fact, the Cochrane Review gathered together 37 randomised controlled trials on scratching. But interestingly, lots of them were really small. So they had less than 150 women randomised in them. Now, really small trials are really hard to determine whether the intervention is helpful or not because the, the number of women included is just too small to really tell if there's an impact. And you were talking earlier about marginal gains. Now when you're looking at marginal gains you need big numbers to be able to see whether there is actually an effect. So we combined all these studies and what we found was that they were so dissimilar 
that there was something called heterogeneity amongst the trials. So some were showing huge impact, uh, uh, some were showing uh, that endometrial scratching helped, some were showing that it really didn't help. It was really hard to tease out um, what all these trials were telling us because there was so much heterogeneity between them. And it was almost impossible to combine them. So what we ended up doing is we took the, the top highest quality studies out of those, so the big studies that randomise properly um, and that reduce selection bias. And what we found was that there was no benefit to endometrial scratching over not scratching. So there were no differences in live birth, pregnancy, um, ectopic pregnancy, uh, miscarriage. But what we did find was that scratching was more painful and cause more bleeding than not scratching, of course. Mm. So yes, that that. But even if we were to combine all the studies, the results would still be the same. So uh, there's no good evidence to suggest that uh, scratching the lining of the womb is any better than not scratching. So an endoscratch, which um, some patients may know this who've had it done, it's a it's a pro it's a, a procedure where you sort of scratch the inside of the womb lining um, during the luteal phase of the cycle. Um, in the treatment cycle before you have your embryo replaced with the aim to, to boost implantation. But it, that you've heard it there, there is no evidence for this at all. Um, but it has been done for years, is that correct? It's been in practice for many years. And it's, it's easy to see why, because there's the initial small trials were showing um, huge benefit in, mm. in doing the scratching. Mm. And of course, biologically, it kind of makes sense. You know, injure the lining, it might improve um, the influx of inflammatory um, cytokines and um, growth factors that might improve the chance of an embryo implanting. But actually, in reality, um, this wasn't borne out when we brought combined all these trials all together and yeah, looked at all yeah. the evidence as a whole. I mean, the biological plausibility of why you might do it is, is there. It's logical. But of course, you know, the actual outcome is that it doesn't benefit live birth rates, which is obviously key. Um, yes. And another one that you've looked very closely at is time lapse photography. And time lapse photography is is where an embryo is followed through in culture um, mm. uh, and images are taken off the embryos as, as they are growing over a period of days. Um, what, mm. what's, the, what's the current sort of thinking around time-lapse photography in terms of evidence? So the, the time-lapse incubators are now very commonplace in uh, fertility clinics all over the world. And just, uh, just as an aside before we get into the evidence, they're really helpful to the laboratory because what it means is you don't have to disturb the embryos when you're assessing them. So instead of taking them out of the incubator once a day to look at under a microscope, they can happily sit in a nice warm box and have photographs taken of them up to every 10 minutes and you get this beautiful time-lapse sequence of them. Now, um, you can see why that may improve the chances of an embryo implanting because you haven't disturbed them, you haven't jiggled them about, they've been in a nice even temperature. But actually when we combined the studies that looked at uh, time-lapse versus no time-lapse, we didn't see um, any benefit in pregnancy or live birth to choose between a conventional incubator and assessment under a microscope once a day or the time-lapse incubator. And the other thing to say about time-lapse is that it, this 
uh, time-lapse sequence can also be looked at by a computer program which can help the embryologist to determine which is the strongest embryo to replace first. Now at the moment with the algorithms that were used in the studies that we looked at, um, there, was, there didn't seem to be any benefit even with the algorithm being applied. Uh, to patients but you know this may be something as as technology gets more sophisticated and we have more cycles to look at it may be that this is a technology which um, can help couples to shorten their time to pregnancy because we're able to put back the embryo that's most likely to implant first mm -hmm. but as it stands the evidence doesn't support it Mm. And I know you talked about convenience there, in fact, and you're, mm. you, you know that's also so important in terms of the efficiency of how a lab runs and how effective it is. And I know yeah. many units have moved just entirely to just time lapse as standard, um, as as a sort of routine way to to monitor their embryos. It's it's nice, it's clean, it's simple, it's easy, and, and embryos are not disturbed. And mm. it is simple. It's far easier to do um, than than standard incubation. Um, but yeah, it's um, it's amazing how all of these things have crept in, as you say. But but actually, when you really dig down into the data, um, yes. success rates don't always increase just by those those add-ons. That's right. I mean, what we did find though is that time lapse is no worse than um, conventional incubation. So, and we didn't think there were any safety issues either that we could find. So, mm. no increase in miscarriage or any other problems with embryos developing. So, I think it's it it's not an unsafe technology it's just that it isn't any better and i suppose what patients need to know is um, whether it's being included as part of a standard cycle where there won't be any additional cost or whether there is an additional cost to use the time lapse can i ask you about another add-on um yes embryo glue it's um uh, it's an additional um sort of culture medium that the embryo is is bathed in prior to transfer um, and uh, there's long been lots of conflicting studies and, and outcomes again with this um, with this add-on. Um, mm. What's the latest in terms of embryo glue, or have you not looked in in too much detail at that one specifically? No, I can tell you a little bit about it. So mm. embryo glue contains something called hyaluronic acid, which mm. um, you may have heard of because it's included in beauty creams, and it's this That's sort of exactly new elixir. <laughs> <laughs> it's meant to make uh, it sort of you know makes you look more youthful and lovely oh, but it also <laughs> it also is supposed to um, improve the chance of an embryo implanting because naturally there is hyaluronic acid present at the time yeah. of implantation in the uterus um, so there has been a Cochrane review on this in 2020 and we included 26 randomized control trials in this so lots of participants lots of women were randomized to, um, to receive embryo glue um, and there is some moderate quality evidence that there may be an improvement in live birth and clinical pregnancy rates with uh, embryo glue the evidence um, for miscarriage is very low quality, so there is some suggestion that it may reduce miscarriage rates, but the, the evidence is low quality, so we can't be completely sure about that. But certainly, there of all the add-ons, I think embryo glue perhaps shows the most promise, and that with some more large, good quality randomised controls to add to the review, we may be more confident in our... Um, opinions on embryo glue you'll see on the HFEA website it's still amber yeah. because there's conflicting evidence yeah it's really uh, and the HFEA website I know we keep talking about that you know we've, mm. we've written on um, total fertility about how useful that that place 
is that part of their website. It, but it really is, isn't it? For, to just get really up-to-date kind of guidance visually, mm. is it's a good place to start, isn't it? I think it's a really handy place to start. And it just gives patients uh, a sort of background on, on the available evidence and something a sort of starting point to talk with your doctor about add-ons, I think. Mm. So, in your opinion, do add-ons add up in terms of what we're talking to patients about should patients be doing add-ons um if clinics say that add-ons are routine and part of what they do um is that acceptable is it just too too difficult to answer do we need more research you know what's the future where are we where are we heading with this because the hfea do take a really important stand with add-ons i mean add-ons have had such a they've they've almost i I guess over the years developed a a sort of a bad they had a bad reputation add-ons really Mm. um because ivf is a commercial business as well so Mm. so yeah what do you think the future is for add-ons and and what should patients really be thinking about what are your top tips well i think we just have to reflect on the fact that clinicians doctors are always trying their very best to get that much wanted baby for a couple and add-ons often come into the picture when couples have had repeated failed cycles of IVF so Mm. they may have tried a number of times and there's a perceived problem with the cycle and add-ons are all designed really to address a perceived problem and so often what will happen is patients will go away and read about these things or a clinician will mention them because they're trying as best they can to improve the outcomes for patients. Now I think it's absolutely fine to think about add-ons in your cycle and have conversations about them. But as doctors, we need to be absolutely open with our patients about the lack of evidence to support their use. And we need to be very transparent about signposting patients to the HFEA website and um, making sure that they are fully informed about the pros and the cons of them, including the additional costs associated with them. And this is something called informed consent. And and I think IVF is such an interesting area of medicine because I could hardly think of another area of medicine where we'd be talking about a treatment that costs money (laughs) that isn't robustly proven to work Mm. Uh, but IVF is as I mentioned before it's at the cutting edge of science and we are talking about something where the stakes are so high you know we're talking about a baby for a couple so I think it's fine to think about add-ons it's fine to address them and talk about them openly with your clinician but just make sure that you know you you're asking as the patient you're asking all those questions like is there an alternative do i have to use it um and and can you tell me where i can find a bit more information out about that yeah i agree i think um it's an important topic to tackle head on um don't be frightened to chat to doctors about it i think as doctors we are doing our best to to help patients every time but also being clear that whilst there are things that you might want to consider they don't always have the strongest levels of evidence so um no thank you for coming and spending some time to talk to us about this area because it's such an important topic it is so crucial to patients when they're looking at the the mounting costs of IVF treatments that they understand the detail um, of what's being said so I mean we've written about it but the HFEA is the best place I think to um, to get real clear evidence for for all of these things as they will be updating things very regularly Um, thank you Sarah for your time and I really look forward to reading your research and watching your career 
uh, as you go forwards because um, you have a, a huge amount of research experience and um, as you work uh, more and more clinically uh, it's just so valuable that you have that evidence um, from all your work to to be able to impart to your patients so thank you no thank you very much ed thank you for inviting me on well we finished 2021 talking about what does ivf cost and actually we've started 2022 a new year talking about some of the additional things that can cause costs to mount in fact it's really important to look at add-ons when you are addressing your own treatment and see if it's worthwhile you doing them ask the hard questions talk to your clinical team talk to the doctors and the nurses who are treating you and work out uh, if you should be even considering add-ons in your treatment as we move on now to the season ahead of podcast episodes we've got some exciting guests and we're looking particularly at conditions common conditions that seem to feature for many many people who are going through fertility struggles we'll be looking at polycystic ovaries endometriosis we'll be looking at how fibroids impact on your fertility and what you can do if you have a low egg reserve we'll also be looking at uh, other important areas such as our body weight and how we can try to optimize our health in general so really exciting to know that we have lots of episodes ahead for you uh, i hope you stay with us this this year please do share all of our episodes with friends or people that you know going through this this difficult area and we hope to help empower you educate you and help you on that road to achieving fertility thanks for coming along today and listening and please do join us next time <laughs>